Hey, welcome back with me. This is week number seven of the book of James. I can't believe we only have one week left. This has been an amazing journey. As always, I am getting way more out of this than you. Uh, I love doing these book studies because what God does inside of me, what I learn and how I grow as we study through a book of the Bible. Uh, Tonight is going to be one of the most significant messages of my life. There's just something special about this week seven message and what we're dealing with. And I hope you see a theme through uh, not just the message tonight, but every message I teach, we always end on the gospel. We always, because the reality is the answer to every single thing you are going through. You give me 10 different scenarios and I will show you how the gospel is the answer to every single scenario, every single problem, every single challenge you can possibly show me. It all goes back to the gospel. So let's let's jump into this. Uh, James chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 13, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 6. He starts verse 13 by saying, now listen, you. Uh, some translations say, come on, man, come on. Like, like it's what it is when you study the language here, because you also see the same phrase in chapter 5, verse 1. It's an ancient Semitic challenge. Listen, come on, man. Like, it's fighting words. It's challenging, challenging words. He's continuing on from chapter 3 with wisdom. And what James is doing is he's trying to contrast God's wisdom with the world's wisdom or what we call foolishness. The world's wisdom is foolishness. Now, when we say the word fool... In our culture today, we say it as an insult, but the Bible uses the word fool much bigger, much broader, much deeper than simply an insult. You see it all throughout the book of Proverbs. Let me give you a working definition for foolishness. In your notes, here's what foolishness is. Culpable blindness to reality that leads to destructive choices. That's the way the Bible looks at foolishness. It's not just an insult. It's culpable blindness. You're responsible for being blind or naive to reality, and it will lead to destructive choices, thinking, and problems in your life. And what James is dealing here is a specific kind of foolishness. Number one in your notes, we call it the foolishness of life control illusion. Life control illusion. And we'll dig into what that means. Let's go back to verse 13. Now listen, you say... Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city or that city. We're going to spend a year there, carry on business, make money. When you listen to this, it looks like on the surface what James is condemning is strategic planning. Because what he's talking about here is a business plan. He's got a strategic location. He's got a targeted time frame. There's revenue goals. Now, if you understand James, James can't be condemning planning and and, and long-term thinking because he draws a lot from the book of Proverbs. And all throughout the Proverbs, it talks about the plans of the diligent leads to uh, profit, Proverbs 21, talking about, you know, it's foolishness to fail to plan and not to think about the future. Jesus, in the famous passage in Luke chapter 4, says, if you want to build a tower, don't you count the cost. Don't you estimate and plan on how to do that so you can make sure you have enough to do it. So James is not saying that the plan itself is foolish. What James is pointing out is there's a specific attitude around the heart about this plan. And the attitude in the heart regarding this plan is what is foolish. Let's keep reading verse 14. Why 
you do not even know. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or do that. As it is, and here's the key, you boast. You boast. I want you to, if you have a Bible, underline or circle the word boast. This is a very, very important word. You boast in your arrogant schemes. You see, the whole plan that James is attacking, he's calling it an arrogant scheme. All such boasting is evil. So what is the issue? What is James getting at? It's a boast. He says the plan is a boast. All of this strategic thinking, all of this strategic planning, it's not healthy, it's not biblical, it's not just planning for the future, it's actually a boast. Now, we don't get this in, in our culture today, but in the Bible times, a boast is a very, very big deal. Boasting is actually a spiritual principle or a spiritual discipline. It's an important theme all throughout the Bible. And you understand this if you've ever seen epic war movies or epic battle movies, because in ancient times, a boast was a ritual of warfare. You're going into battle. It's the finale scene of the movie. We've all heard the great general or the military leader. They give this rousing speech. We will feast and their walls tomorrow charge. And all the guys are fired up and they're all shouting and yelling. And they run right into the face of death for this final battle scene, all because of a boast. You see, here's the question. How do you get a bunch of men a bunch of men or women, to charge into certain death? How do, you, how do you give them the confidence to face a foe? And the answer is a boast. Our director of operations here, Josh, uh, is a West Point graduate. He was a combat veteran. He led men in some of the worst firefights you could imagine in the Middle East. He's got stories that none of us ever would, would dream on anyone to have to live through the things that he's seen, he's done. I asked him one day about leadership. What is leadership? And his answer to me is leadership is motivating a bunch of guys against every fiber in their body to charge uphill against a machine gun nest. Well, the Bible says that motivation is a boast. A boast is what gives you the confidence to face death. Look at it in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 9, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. You see, a boast gives you the confidence to face life. A boast gets you up every day to face the challenges that you're facing. So the question is, what is your boast in? What do you tell yourself every day to get up and face life, and face the challenges, and face the problems. You see, Jeremiah says is what we tend to do as human beings is we find anything other than the Lord to put our boast in. We'll put our boast in our strength. We'll put our boast in our wisdom. We'll put our boast in our money. James is saying there's a particular form of this that we see here in chapter 4, and it's a boast in our efforts, in our planning, 
in our research, in our hard work that says, now I am in control of my future. And he says, that's foolish. What that is, is a life control illusion. It is an illusion that if you do your due diligence, if you do your strategic planning, if you have the right strategy that you can control your future and you can, you can control outcomes and you can determine your destiny. And that's opposite of a heart that says, what happens to me in my life is basically dependent on things that are beyond my control. And if there are any accomplishments in my life, if there's any comforts to my life, if there are any good things that happen in my life, it is because of divine help. Now, what's amazing to me is that James, when he wrote this 2,000 years ago, had enough people who had this problem in their life that he felt the need to write about this. That's amazing to me, but it's a good thing he did because we have a particular form of foolishness. And if you really think about it, it is worse in our modern American culture than any other culture ever in the history of the world. Think about this. What are you told in every elementary school in America? What are we told in every movie? We're told that you can choose whatever you want to be. You can choose whatever you want to do with your life. You can choose whatever you become. That is the American way. And James says, the Bible says, that's foolish. You're out of touch with reality. You know, one of my favorite movie trilogies was Back to the Future. I love the Back to the Future movies. And at the very end of the last movie, Doc says to Marty McFly, he says, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. And we love that because we're Americans. And we were taught that growing up, that you control the future and you can set the future and you can determine to become anything you want to be. If you read business books, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book a few years ago called Outliers. And what the book shows is what most cultures in the world know, and that's your success in life is actually not completely under your control. That yes, hard work and aptitude are important, but they're small parts of a whole. Because along with hard work, along with aptitude, there has to be the right circumstances, there has to be the right timing, there has to be the right upbringing. And so the book is part social science, it's part common sense, but what it basically says is you are dependent in your life, your success is dependent on forces that are beyond your control. And the Bible goes a step further. Because what the Bible says is that if you believe what we believe as Americans, that the future is whatever you make it, the Bible says you are a fool. It's foolish. It's life control illusion. And that's not an insult. That's a fact. Because again, we use the word fool as an insult. The Bible uses the word fool as a fact. It's culpable blindness. Remember, that leads to a reality that brings you destructive choices in your life. Now, why is this such a problem? Two reasons James points out. Again, verse 14, you do not even know. You don't know. You don't know. The first re reason that this is an illusion in your notes is it's based on an assumption, an assumption that it's possible for you to predict the future, to manage risk, and control outcomes. That's why it's an illusion. It's an assumption that, that there is something you can do to predict your future that will manage risk and control outcomes, and that is destructive in our life because what it 
does is create in your notes overconfidence and anxiety. Overconfidence. Let me give you an example. The 2000, 2008, uh, a real estate crash in America. What happened? Well, you had all these uh, designers of this real estate market who designed this strategy to make lots of money. They came up with almost 100% mortgages and, and everybody was making money because real estate was going up so fast and they designed this incredible model to make money and then all of a sudden everything crashed. What did they say? Here's what they said. This and that has never happened before. In fact, this and that has never happened since we've been studying what's been happening. Like there is no research, data, or metrics to ever show or prove that this and that would ever happen. And what they said is we didn't know. That's what James is saying. You don't know. You can't predict. You can't control. How many of you saw COVID coming? Again, we didn't know. You can't know. And if you think you know enough, about the future to control and manage, you're going to make bad decisions. It's overconfidence, but it also creates anxiety. How does it create anxiety? Well, if you think about what worry is, you know, if you deal with worry, if you deal with anxiety, what worry is is saying, I know how my life ought to go. Like, I know. I know how my future should look. I know exactly what should happen, and I'm afraid it's not going to to happen, so I worry. <laughs> I worry. Let me give you an example. Before I met Amanda, a, a number of years before I met Amanda, I was dating a girl that I knew I was supposed to marry. But the problem was, even though I knew she was the one, she wanted to break up with me. So I had this dilemma. I knew she was the one. She wanted to break up with me. What it created was major anxiety in my life because I knew she. I knew how my future was supposed to look. Well. What if I would have known James 4 well enough? What if I would have known you don't know? What makes you so sure she's the one? What makes you so sure this is what your future is supposed to look like? You see, worry is based on an assurance that you know the future and you know what tomorrow ought to bring. Both anxiety and overconfidence come out of this illusion. Second reason, first reason is, is we didn't know Second reason is we're not in control. We're not in control. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will. <laughs> if it's the Lord's will, we're going to live and we're going to do this or we're going to do that. You don't control things. <laughs> Let me put it like this. Every this and every that only happens if it is the Lord's will. Now, let me warn you right now, we're going to get into a major theme of the Bible that is split churches. It is split Christianity. It is split denominations. It's the whole uh, Armenian Calvinian, uh, Calvinist debate between predestination and free will. And the question is, are we free? Do we have free will? Do we have the ability of free choice to make decisions for our future? Or is everything fixed and pre Determine. That's the debate in a lot of circles of Christianity today. Now, what I'm going to warn you about is the Bible has a balance and a nuance on this subject beyond anywhere and anything else that, that you and I have ever seen, and it stretches us to catch up to where the Bible is on this subject, but it's critical for us to understand this. See, most of us assume 
that either God is in control of everything, and everything that happens is part of God's master plan, or we assume that our choices matter, and we determine the future. So, if everything is predetermined, then everything I do really doesn't matter because it's going to happen anyways, or either it's fixed, and what I do doesn't matter, or what I do matters, and I determine the future. Here's the truth, and this is in your notes. We must reconcile the truth that God is in control, and and we have free choice. God is in control, and at the very same time, we have free choice. In your notes, it is not either or, but both and. And it's crucial for you to understand this. It's not either or, it's both and. Both are true, and if you don't understand both being true, you're going to be a fool. You'll live foolishly, and you'll make destructive decisions for your life. Let me give you an example in the Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter is preaching about Jesus. He says, this man (coughs) was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. Well, what is it? What is it? It, that, that, that's a contradiction. If God predetermined and preordained and preplanned that this was going to happen to Jesus, they didn't have a choice. They were only doing what God predetermined for them to do. They became robots in that moment, and they did not have a choice. They did not have a will. But that's not what Peter's saying. Look, he doesn't say, it, you know, everything was ordained so you couldn't help it. If it wasn't you, it would have been someone else. And he also didn't say that, you know, what you did mattered. Like, we were up in heaven, all the angels, and we were wondering, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Is Jesus going to die or is he going to live? Is this whole thing going to get messed up? What do you, like, like, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. No, Peter is saying it's not an either or. God did foreordain this. God did predetermine this. And you had a choice to participate. Both are true. God absolutely and infallibly works out his sovereign will, but all of your choices you are responsible for. And no one is forcing you, and you will be accountable. It is both and, not either or. And unless they are together, unless you understand this balance, you will not live wisely. You will either become passive and, 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 and not really care how you live your life, or you think that you will be able to control your future. The Bible says live wisely. Your choices matter, and yet ultimately you are not in control. God is. And see, this is the problem. American psychology has done a lot of writing about how unwise, how foolish Americans are about how they understand mental health in other cultures. I've told this story before, the tsunami in Southeast Asia. You know, 250,000 people die. People's lives are devastated. People lose everything, businesses, family, homes, cities wiped out. And so a group of mental health experts from the West, some American mental health experts and British mental health experts, they, they're thinking to themselves, these people are going to be devastated. They're going to be just completely distraught and emotionally crippled because of what they went through. It's so traumatizing. They don't know how to process the, this level of grief and, and anxiety and, and depression. And so we're going to go help these people. Well, they go to the, the, the Southeast Asia area of the tsunami, and they can't find anybody that's devastated. They're talking to people, wait a second, wait, you lost, you lost your wife and your children and your home 
and your business and your city and your re- and it's all gone. Yes, but we're building a new house over here. Do you want to come see it? Like, like, like what's going on? You see, almost everybody in the world outside of Americans or outside of like the Western world believes that life that we live is beyond our control. And yet we as Americans somehow feel that life should be perfect and life should be right. And if it's not going our way, somebody is screwing up. So we're going to sue them. We're going to vote them out of office. Like it's not my fault. It's somebody else's because everything should be perfect. It's life control illusion. And as a result, as Americans, we are the most traumatized people by suffering. Like like we have the hardest time dealing with suffering because we, we fall under this life control illusion that we know how things are supposed to work out. We don't, we don't have this ability to take bad things in stride because James says you don't know how to live wisely because we have a culpable blindness to reality that has led us to destructive choices and thinking. And, and again, I, I know it's hard. You know, when you've been raised in this culture, you know, don't, don't punish yourself because you've fallen under the spell. We're in the culture. It's affected all of us but the question is, what do we do about it? Well, James doesn't immediately say what makes it better, but he does show us what makes it worse. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So here's the question. What is the relationship between verses 13 to 17 and verses 1 to 6? Because it looks like two totally different subjects when you're reading it. It's like James is talking about this, and then all of a sudden James is talking about this, and there's no connection between the two, but it's not. You see, what he does with verses 1 through 6, number 2 in your notes, is he shows us the signs of life control illusion. If you're on, if you, like verses 13 to 17 is all about life control illusion, verses 1 to 6 shows you the signs, shows you the results, shows you what happens when you are under this illusion. When you think that you can control your future, it leads to the people you see depicted in, in chapter 5. Look at this, verse 1, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. In other words, how do you know that you have the life control illusion? How do you know you suffer with this? What James is showing us here, and this is, this is going to raise the temperature a little bit of this message, but what James is showing us is the way you know is how do you spend and how do you use your money? Money is one of the, the, the key indicators to look at whether you're under this illusion. Why? If you really believe, if you truly believe that your success is mainly due to forces that are beyond your control, then what assets you have, you're not going to treat as fully yours. And what that does is it makes you radically generous with your assets because you realize life, the life you have now isn't just because you worked really hard, but there's a grace of God factor on your life. So as people under grace, we live beneath our means so that we can be more generous for the kingdom. But if you have the life control illusion, which our American culture has driven into us, and you are successful at the same time, it's very dangerous. 
Because what happens is you treat everything as absolutely yours. And here's the results that James gets at. Uh, In your notes, the first is selfishness. Verse 5, you're living for yourself. All of this belongs to me. It's mine. I earned it. I worked for it. I made this stinginess. Verse 4 talks about not sharing, being ruthless with business practices, not sharing the right level of profit with employees, and then self-indulgence. Again, you see that in verse 5. What is self-indulgence? Spending more on yourself than what is right. Spending more on your home, spending more on your toys, spending more on your vacation, spending more on your clothes, on yourself, because you see it all as you're spending more than what is right. Not against clothes, vacations, cars, toys, or any of that. Self-indulgence is simply spending more than what is right. And perhaps the most frightening part of this is what actually can happen to you. Go back to verse 3. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Eat your flesh like fire. What is that a metaphor for? See, there's nothing wrong with being rich. James is not against rich people. There's nothing wrong with it if you don't have life control illusion because if you are rich and you're not under life control illusion, you will be a force for good in the world that we live. But if you have this illusion, then when success comes, it eats you from the inside out spiritually and makes you a fool. You see, Proverbs says foolishness is to be wise in your own eyes. I did this. I'm smarter than other people. That's why I have all this. That's why I'm successful. You see, what happens is they assume they're smarter than other people, and if they get their way, they can be a success at anything. And here's the danger. People who are successful in one area, if they have this life control illusion, they automatically assume they're wise in all areas. Like if I figure this out, I can figure anything out, not realizing that half of the success is because of grace, not because of them. Why do you think people who are very successful financially tend to be the worst parents? Because of life control illusion. They think if I can be successful making money, I can be successful at raising kids. And yet, oftentimes, we see the exact opposite in their homes. So here's where we're going to end. Number four, the antidote. What's the antidote to life control illusion? What's the cure? What's, what's the remedy? Well, let's go back to verse 14. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist. You're a breath that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You see, what chapter 4 is all about is the life of breath. Our life is a mist. Our life is a vapor. Our life is a breath. Now, this is brutal. This, This is hard hitting. You think you're all that. You think that you're in control. You're a mist. You're here for a little while and then gone. The image that James is painting is when it's cold outside and you can see your breath. You, you know when it's cold and, and you breathe and you can see your breath for a second and it's there and then it's gone? Next time it's cold outside and you can see your breath, try to grab it and hold on to it. You can't. You can't. And that's what James is saying. That's your life. Your breath, it's here for a little while and then it's gone. And, and he says, unless you understand this, you're out of touch with reality. Unless you realize that, that everything is, a, even the whole world, we, your car, your house, your home, your clothes, they're not going to be here a thousand years from today. 1 John 2, 17, the world and its desires pass away. 1 Corinthians 7, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. 
Those who buy something live your life as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. This means everything you do, everything you are, will be utterly forgotten, and nothing you do will make any lasting difference. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest humanitarian like Mother Teresa or you're the worst mass murderer like Jack the Ripper. Think about it. Unless there is a God, unless there is an eternity, nothing you do has any meaning because the world that we live in is passing away. If you have a young family, if you've got a family with young children at home, eventually someone in that family will see every other person in the grave. And no amount of strategic planning, no amount of due diligence, no amount of hard work will change it or stop it. So what do I live for then? What do, what do I set my life on? Well, if only I could get down to a size eight. If only I could buy that car. If only I could live in that house. Instead, why don't we say, what can I do with my life that will be around five billion years from now? So what is the answer to the life of breath? The answer in your notes is the breath of life. The breath of of life. What is the breath of life? John 20. And with that, Jesus breathed on them. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The breath of life is his spirit. The word spirit literally translated in the Greek language is breath, pneuma, breath, the breath of God. Well, didn't they already have the breath of life? They had it physically, but not spiritually. They had physical breath at birth, but the physical is temporary. It's running out. Eventually, the physical breath will be gone from inside of their body. But when Jesus breathed on them and he put God's breath inside of them, he gave them an inner nature that will last forever. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away the life of breath, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day, the breath of life. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what on is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How is it possible that our life that is nothing but a breath can be turned into the breath of life? Well, let's go through it backwards. Everything you see that James is talking about, if you put it in reverse, it implies things that should be done. Well, here's the question. Who did it all? Who lived a life without boasting? Who made themselves of no reputation? Who said, if it's the Lord's will, not my will, but thy will be done? Who lost control? You see, Jesus lived in absolute control, and yet he chose to give up control to come to earth. And Jesus said nothing when they charged him and when they beat him. When they said, if you're the son of God, come down off that cross, take control of your life. He didn't. He didn't take control. Why? Because he was in our place. He lost control for us. That's the gospel. Jesus came and lost control of his life so that you and I could know that everything is under control. Romans 8, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He lost control so that you and I would know that if we believe in him and if we trust in him, he would be in control of everything, even the things that we don't understand. He lost control to save you. Put it like this. Why did the eternal become mortal? So that we 
mortals could become eternal and last forever. And it was all about a boast. So I end the message, what is your boast? And that's the key to the breath of life. Is your boast in the life of breath? Is your boast in the breath of life? Do you put the confidence in the life of breath? Are you putting confidence in your life, in your ability, in your strategic planning, in your due diligence, in your hard work, in your effort? Is your boast in the life of breath or is your boast in the breath of life? God's spirit, God's grace, God's favor that is in you and on you. What is your boast? What is your confidence to face the day? That's the heart of what James is getting at here. Father, we thank you for this challenging and tough message, God. Lord, here in America, every single one of us, including myself, have been affected by the life control illusion. It's so rampant in our culture that it's hard to even see the areas of our life that have bought into it so subtly. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you wake us up and you reveal to us the areas of our life that we have have been allured into this life control illusion that we would be awoken to realize that it's your grace, it's your favor, it's your breath in us, not our life that is just a breath, in Jesus' name. Let's jump into some questions. Come on, Greg. My goodness, life life control illusion. I think you've just like destroyed a couple of industries. so, so the, first, the first question is, where do I draw the line or what's the difference between taking a step of faith and counting the cost? Well, we're to do both. Again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. And that's the message of this. It's a both and. The danger is when we put our boast, mm-hmm. which is confidence, in counting the cost. The Bible instructs us to count the cost, so we count the cost out of obedience. Mm -hmm. But we don't count the cost out of confidence. We don't put our faith in counting the cost. We count the cost out of obedience. We put our faith in God because as much as we count the cost, as much as we want to count the cost, we still can't predict the outcome. We can do our best to live with wisdom and count the cost, but if it happens, it's still God's grace and favor on our life and not our wisdom or ability or smarts or genius. And so, again, it goes back to the issue of it's not an either or, it's a both and. Wow, that's so, that's so interesting, right? Because counting the cost, so we know that it's God doing everything. We can't yes. do anything of value unless, unless God is the one that's doing it through us, right? Uh, but the counting of the cost is still, the diligence is still the obedience. Can you, can you, can you like, kind of explain that a little bit more? Can you kind of go deeper on that? It, it's, it's the choice that we make. We count the cost, we plan, we, we, we save for the future. Uh, the Bible, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize the Bible teaches two tithes. You know, there's the first tithe that's to God, so the first 10% of all that we earn goes to God. There's a second tithe to my future. The Bible instructs me to take a second 10% and put it into a long-term savings account for my future. That's, that's part of that long-term thinking that the book of Proverbs teaches. And, and the amazing thing is if you do the math on it, if all you did was live a biblical life and you made an average of $50,000 a year during your working life, and all you did was live biblically, which means you tied 10% to God, you tie 10% to yourself, and you live off of no more than 80%, 
which is doable. I know many people think that's not impossible. It's doable. It is absolutely doable. People do it all the time. Uh, you, know, you, you, you know, you have to be humble, but you can absolutely do it. You got to be content, but you can do it. That long-term savings account, if you look at the power of compound interest over 40 years, uh, I forgot what the math is, but $50,000, 10% over 40 years, you know, at 6 to 8% of, of returns is something like a million dollars when you retire. And then if you just live off the interest of that, you actually get a raise when you retire. And that's just living biblically. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so that's wisdom that the Bible leads us to do. Now, my hope is not in that. You know, that's wisdom. God's leading me to do it. My hope is in God. So my faith is in God. God's telling me to do this, so I'm going to trust God. Now, whether he uses this or he does something else to provide for my future, I don't know. He's going to do one of the two. He's going to do one of the two. I, I, don't have to, I don't have to know how he's going to provide for my future. I just have to do what he tells me to do. So part of that is saving and retiring. And he may, he may only use my retirement to provide for my future. Or my retirement may be wiped out by something I can't control, and he does something else to take care of my future. Mm. My faith is in him, not my retirement. That's my obedience, but my faith is in him. Wow. Wow. And so, one, I had, am I the only one that had no idea that you were supposed to tie the second percent to yourself, 10% to yourself? Thank you. Right? I had, I had no, no clue. Uh, but I can go back to my job and say, hey, you did not make this up. This came from the Bible. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 10, 10, 80 rule. Wow. That's something else. Okay. And so then there's another question here along the lines of, uh, along the lines of wealth. If someone is wealthy, do you think it's okay to live luxuriously? And you talked about this a little bit, right? Live luxuriously, or what does that look like? What, you know? I think self-indulgence is a sin, James says. We are not to have self-indulgence. It is not my job to decide for someone else what self-indulgence is. They have the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me be very, very clear. Do not judge someone as being self-indulgence if you're not in their shoes. It's very, very dangerous. I can look at someone that goes out and buys a Bentley and say, that's so self-indulgent. They can drive a Ford. I'm not in their shoes. I don't have the right to make that call for them. Mm -hmm. Only the Holy Spirit has the right to tell them what they can and can't drive. There may be another reason the Holy Spirit has them driving that car because of evangelistic purposes, because of the influence it's going to have on a neighbor or somebody they meet. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing. Mm -hmm. All I know is we're called to be stewards of our life and manage our life well for God, and what self-indulgence looks like for me is different for somebody else. So where my line of self-indulgence is is different for somebody else based on where I'm at in my life. There's not a general rule of self-indulgence across the board. Mm. Now, there is some fair share in the kingdom of God. Tithing, it's 10%, whether you make $10,000, $100,000, a million dollars, or $10 million, it's 10%. It's 10%, period. You know, that's equal across the board. That's your tithe to God, mm-hmm. you know, it, however much money you make. But again, it's not, it's not any person's place to look at someone who makes more money than them and say, that's self-indulgence. No, 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 that's the Holy Spirit's role. Don't take God's spot or you're going to get judged even harder. Man, preach. <clears throat> and I think that, um, that you saying that and someone hearing that on both sides the person that needs to hear, don't judge, and the other person that, that also needed to hear that they're not going to be judged. I've got incredibly wealthy friends who've heard from God clearly about a, a very expensive car that they drive. 
and, and they heard from God to buy that car. Uh, and, and there's incredible stories of evangelism that are connected to their obedience in that area. Now, another Christian is going to look at that and judge them and say, oh, that's so self-indulgence. They could, you know, like I remember a friend of mine had a Rolex uh, um, and this, this really petty, you know, religious Christian grabbed his arm one day and says, why don't you sell that and give it to the poor? And, and his response was beautiful. He looked at me, he says, because God has blessed me enough where I don't have to sell this to give to the poor. <laughs> I give far more to the poor every month than you can imagine, and I don't have to sell this to do it. And I thought that was such a brilliant response because God has, nothing, God has no issue blessing his children. We have to be very careful we don't judge the blessing of God on somebody else's life. Our job is to be stewards over our life and allow the Holy Spirit to direct our life and allow Him to direct other people's life. And they will be accountable to God for how they spent their money, not me. Man, yeah. This is... This, so we're having church today, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Told you the temperature was going to rise. <laughs> this is all right. Okay, and so another question that's, uh, that's come up then... Um, uh, and I don't know if you meant for it to go this way or not, right? But of course, it's, it's what's happening with the money conversation. If I find myself often thinking about money or making money or how to make more money, is that wrong or is that a sin? No, that may be a spiritual gift. You know, there's people in our church that have the spiritual gift of making money. They dream business deals. It's, they recognize this is a gift the Holy Spirit put on their life. And they want to use that gift for the kingdom of God. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with having the gift of making money and being really good at making money as long as you're a steward, as long as you don't look at it as yours, mm -hmm. as long as you recognize the fact that God gave me this gift and I'm using it for his kingdom, not for my own estate. Now, your estate will be blessed in the process, but it's God's gift on your life that you use for his kingdom purposes. But there's nothing wrong with that, and there's people who have that gift, and, and they're unbelievable with that gift. Now, is there people who have that gift and use it selfishly? Yeah, but again, it's not my place to judge them. It's my place to teach the Bible and, and allow the Holy Spirit to be their Holy Spirit because, again, they don't need a holy errand. <laughs> nice. All right, so, uh, so there's, there's a question here. Was James talking to a group of people specifically when he was talking about self-indulgence? He was talking to a culture, for sure. I mean, I don't know if, like, because, again, he was talking to the 12 tribes scattered. Okay. So there may have been one group somewhere that he heard about that needed to be addressed, or it may have just been a prevalent feel in the culture. It may have been like in America. Like, again, that message is relevant to America. You don't have to say, well, this is relevant to San Diego, uh, or this is relevant to... Ne no, this is relevant to America. Like, mm -hmm. all America could hear this message and use this message. So we don't know specifically... Uh, you know, smarter people than me may know that there was actually something happening outside. You know, we read an outside, you know, Mark Turnage Mark. may know that something outside of the Bible reveals that James was talking about this specific group of people, but I don't personally know. Gotcha, gotcha. And so along those lines then, as far as, uh, this, along the lines of boasting and trusting in God, right, what about uh, when you receive a dream, right, or... Yeah, am I asking this the right way? Yeah, when you receive a dream, yeah. you know, you have a dream, you, you trust and you believe that it's from the Lord, and you're supposed to go out and execute it, but then things don't go right, right? Like, how, you know, how do you reconcile those things? How do you yeah, I mean, look at Joseph. He had this incredible dream from God, and things did not go right for him. <laughs> they went from bad to worse, and, and it, it was like 17 years of hell, you know, that he went through. 
before God finally brought the dream to pass. Right. And so just because God gives you a dream doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. You got to hold on to the dream. That is interesting, though, because it doesn't mean it's going to happen with both James and with, not James, uh, Joseph and with, with King David, who's like my yeah. favorite person. Like He's anointed life. to be king, and then he has to go back out and take care of sheep. And be on the run for like over yeah. a decade, right? Mm-hmm. But the dream still happened at the same time, which is also interesting in those yeah. cases. Yeah. Now, how many dreams didn't happen that we don't know about in the Bible because they let go? That's why Paul says, do not grow weary while doing good, because in due time you'll reap if you don't lose heart. How many people lost heart, let go of the dream before it came to pass that we don't know about? Right. Shoot. Okay. <laughs> All right, and so here's a, here's a question about, about stinginess. If I'm stingy at times and people find it hard, find it hard to give uh, to God and other people, what advice would you have for someone like, and then I did something silly, so I can't, like that, there you go. Uh, we all struggle with stinginess because we're human. Uh, the key to, the, the number one key to breaking stinginess, materialism, greed is tithing. Tithing is the antidote to greed and materialism. Um, tithing is the first step. You know, if they want to break the power of money in their life, where money, they're not serving money, but money is serving them, which is the, the biblical model is money is created to serve you for the purposes of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yet most of us are serving money. We're either living for money because of greed or we're living for money because of debt. You know, we're serving money. The starting point to break the power of... Because money is a spirit just like the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls money mammon. And it's a spirit. It speaks to you. It speaks to you just like the Holy Spirit speaks to you. The Bible teaches to break the spirit of mammon in your life is the biblical tithe. When we, when we return to God the first 10% of everything we earn, it breaks the spirit of mammon, which breaks the power of greed and materialism in our life, which moves us to generosity and, and it, it, it breaks the grip of stinginess in our life. Got you. And so, th- my mind is blown. <laughs> All right, so we have another question here. Uh, is that why, and so, that he, so this was probably put in, in context and I just missed it, right? Jesus said it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven. And so I guess the question is, why did he say that? Well, because money is a blinder. Greed, greed is the only sin you don't know you have. I've, I've pastored for years. I've never had one person come to my office and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm struggling with materialism. <laughs> never. Like, I've heard every sin you can imagine. I've never had one person confess greed to me. And the reason is nobody assumes they have greed because as long as you know one human being alive, and you may not even know him personally, you may know him in the media, who, who you assume is greedier than you, you automatically assume you don't struggle with greed. So you're blind to greed. Jesus says if, if, if the, the lamp is dark, how dark is the body? If the eye is dark, and that was all about greed. It's, it's you don't know you have greed. You don't know you struggle with greed. And that's why tithing is so critical and small groups are so critical because when you have godly friends in your life, they can say, bud, you, you're struggling with some greed. <laughs> you know, you got to have some, some friends in your life that you give them permission to say you're dealing with some materialism or seeing it in your life. Who have you given permission to say that to you? You know, because it is. It's the sin you don't know you have. Wow. All right. And so uh, at the end of the day, trust the Holy Spirit, boast 
in God and God's power, God's sovereignty. Do what God is telling you to do. Obey, be diligent, but know that it's not our obedience. We cannot earn. We cannot earn God's, uh, God's yeah. blessing. It's, yeah, it's James is not a book of willpower or effort. It's a book of the gospel empowering a new life. Wow. All right. And so this has been an absolutely amazingly powerful session. I got so wrapped up in it, I went over a minute and a half or so. I'm sorry. It was good. It's good. <laughs> it was good. Uh, we will be back one more time, huh? Next week, finale. Next week, next week is the finale. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week. And uh, everybody have a great night. Peace out.